Well, welcome this morning. Feel free to have a seat. It is great to have you here at Christ Community Church this morning, whether you are here with us in person or whether you are joining us on live stream. It's great to be here with you. My name is Brent. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church, and I hope for some of the fathers out here, you, are, you enjoyed this last Father's Week. It is a week, right? We get the whole week, I think. Uh, at least we should. Um, I know this week in particular, my wife and I enjoyed uh, our 15-year wedding anniversary. So we uh, celebrated 15 years of being married on Thursday, and it was a lot of fun. One of the things we got to do this week is we watched our wedding video with our children. And they had a lot of fun seeing us 15 years younger than we are now and kind of enjoying those experiences, seeing old faces and, and uh, getting to kind of experience what it was like for us 15 years ago. But as I watched them this week, it impacted me just how much of an impact we have on these kids as they grow up, just how much they begin to see the world through our eyes, through the way we shape the world for them. As I thought about that and as I thought about the text that we're in this morning, I was reminded of a story of another father who was also a lawyer. That's my day job. I, I practice law here in the area. And this father was also a lawyer in Germany in the 1800s. And he uh, came from a, a Jewish family in Germany. They lived in the town of Nijmagen in Germany. And he practiced law there for several years, and after practicing there as, a, as an attorney, he decided to pack up his family and move to another town, uh, Porta Nigira, in Germany, because he thought business would be better in this new town. And so he packed up his family, they moved together to this new city, and what he discovered when he got there is that the Jewish community in this new town was relatively small, and that it was the Lutheran church that dominated the social and the business landscape of this new town. And so he uh, decided that it would be in his best interest. He wasn't a very devout Jew anyway, so he decided that it would be in his best interest to change his religion from Judaism to Lutheranism. And so he did that, and he led his family, and they all converted to Lutheranism. It was a very liberal Lutheran church. It was a church that denied the infallibility of Scripture. It was a church that denied the, the, uh, the reality of Christ and His resurrection. And it was, it was more of a humanist club than a real church. And so he did this, and he did it primarily for his own economic benefit. And this decision by this German lawyer named Heinrich had a powerful impact on his son, Carl. And his son Carl grew up and he followed in his father's footsteps and went to law school there in Germany and studied law and economics. And as he was there in Germany studying law and economics, he came to the conclusion that when it comes to religion, that all religious activities that human beings engage in are really just economic decisions. They're really just decisions they make to benefit themselves. So he came to this conclusion about religious activity, and so he had to start to look for another way to understand what was happening in the world. And while he was studying in Germany, uh, getting his doctorate, getting his uh, doctorate in economics, he, he developed a theory that became known as uh, dialectical materialism. 
And dialectical materialism, that word dialectical is a fancy word for conflict. He decided that the entire world could be explained through the conflict of different classes. That these classes were in conflict with one another and that all of human history could be explained by understanding this particular conflict. And the conflict that interested him the most was the conflict between rich and poor, between the owner class, the people who owned the means of production, the people who owned the factories in Germany, the people who, who were uh, the ones who seemed to have all of the capital, all of the money, and the laborer the one who worked in those factories, the one who worked long hours in these factories and who gave their lives working these, these very difficult conditions. And he developed this theory that all of human history and all human institutions could be viewed through the lens of the conflict between these two classes. And so he developed certain critical theories to examine the institutions of his day to figure out how does government benefit the owner class at the expense of the labor class? How does the church benefit the owner class at the expense of the labor class? And he began to examine all the institutions of his day through the lens of this conflict between rich and poor, owner and laborer. And he came to the conclusion, especially when it comes to religion, that religion was in fact the invention of the owner class to suppress the laborer class. Because see, religions were invented to teach those poor laborers who whittled away their lives in the factory under these terrible conditions that they were really good if they were really good little laborers, that God would reward them one day in the future. And that this whole system of religion was really designed to be what was described as an opiate to the masses, to keep the people, the laboring class, subdued so that they would behave themselves and not take from the owner class. The man I'm talking about his name is Karl Marx, and his theory that he developed was communism. He developed communism to deal with this conflict between the owner class and the laborer class. And his whole idea was that if we could wake up, if we could wake up the laborer class, that's where all the power was, they outnumbered the owners. There were more of them than there were of the owners. If we could just wake them up, then we could turn the tables. And we could create a labor, a worker's utopia here on earth. Now, I tell you this story to highlight two things. One is the consequences, the dire consequences of false religion, of a religion that is based just about you, around your needs. It has devastating effects. Heinrich Marx living out his faith in a way that he did what benefited him in this new community. He changed his religion like he changed his shoes. Whichever one fit the best had a deep impact on his son, 
And his son, seeing the false religion in his father, turned to the world to figure out how to find meaning. And the result is a false gospel. A false gospel that, as we know throughout history, has not created a worker's utopia anywhere, but has instead caused untold misery. Karl Marx must not have been a student of James, the apostle. As we've been studying in our look at the book of James, there is a true religion. There is a religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Last week, uh, we, we looked at that. We ended there that it's not just the hearers of the word, it's the doers of the word that God wants, that God requires. And this true religion is a religion that works itself out and cares for others. It's a religion that works. It's a religion that cares for people around us. That's true religion. But it's also a religion that is worked out from God's perspective, not from the world's. Last week we ended on James chapter 1, verse 27, and here's where we left it. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Before God. Religion that is worked out before God is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religion, true religion, is helping the, the poorest, the most desperate people in need. Pouring out your lives for them. But not from the world's perspective. Not according to the world's standards. But from God's perspective. We're going to look at that today, what that looks like a little bit more. But before we do that, I want to direct your attention to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22... Jesus himself helps us to understand this perspective a little bit better. When he's asked a particular question in his day, he's asked by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? And he gives a response, and here's the response he says. He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. I want you to notice the priority here. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, with everything. And it is only when you have done that that you can do what Jesus says next. And he says this, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Loving God first, we can rightly love others because he made them. If we try to love others without loving God, we will not love others. We will not understand who people are. We will not understand what they need if we don't first love God and listen to him and serve them 
from his perspective. It's impossible. You can't love others without loving God first. We can't go to the world for answers on this. True religion must be worked out from God's perspective. Now, I think that is very crucial for us all to understand as we look at James 2 and the passages that we have before us today. Let's read those together. James says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. We're talking today about partiality how we make distinctions among other people, and we we judge some people better than others. And James says, show no partiality, but there's a modifier to it. He makes it clear, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's going to give, now at this point, how the world makes distinctions. He's going to give the worldly perspective here. This is the perspective we are to avoid. And here's what he says. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. That's the worldly perspective. Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, if we take our eyes off of God and we begin to judge things the way the world does, what are we going to do? What will we inevitably do at that point? We will look at our fellow man and we will say, how does that person benefit me? Here comes the rich man into my church. Hmm, he looks like he can contribute to the building fund. He looks like he'll tithe a lot. And here comes the poor man. Yeah, yeah, we're glad he's here, but he's probably going to take up our resources, right? If we begin to judge the world in this way through the eyes of the world, there's a problem. There's a problem. And James addresses that problem in verse 4. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Have you not created divisions that God does not recognize? Have you not begun to see the world and begun to see people through the eyes of men and not through the eyes of God? Are not your thoughts evil? Are they not below God's thoughts? That's James' point. He begins to deconstruct their world, their view, their view this view of the world. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen? Has not God chosen? What has God chosen? Those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? See, James points out that God has a different standard than we do. He has different purposes than we do. Maybe we have purposes to build buildings. Maybe we have purposes to collect a lot of tithes. Maybe we have purposes to build our own kingdoms. God has different purposes than we do. God doesn't choose according to worldly purposes. God chooses according to his purposes. 
And here he says, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? This passage right here is a lot like what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's writing to these Corinthians, this church that he loves, and he turns to them and he writes to them and he says to them, I don't know if any of you have noticed, but not many of you are wise. Not many of you are strong in this world. Not many of you would be judged wise or, or smart or intelligent by earthly standards, by worldly standards. But then he tells them, he says, but has not God chosen what is weak and what is foolish in this world to shame the wise and the strong? You see, God has different purposes in mind for his choices, and they are not choices, they are not purposes that are based on worldly agendas. And when we base our decisions, when we make our choices based on worldly factors, based on the way the world sees things, we are people with evil thoughts, thoughts that are far below God, and we have failed to see things from his perspective. James goes on in James chapter 2 and he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, he's, he's turning on its head this worldly view. He's deconstructing this worldly view that, look, you should, you should judge people on how it looks like they can benefit you. It may seem like the rich are the ones who benefit you, but aren't they often the ones who drag you in the court? Aren't they often the ones who persecute you? And what James is doing here, you see, James wrote this letter. He didn't write it over the course of the six or seven weeks that it's going to take us to study it maybe or longer than that, the 10 or 12 weeks that it's going to take us to study it. He wrote it, he sat down, and he wrote this entire letter out, probably in one sitting. And right before he's writing this, he had also written James chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, all good and perfect gifts come down from above, from God, from the Father of lights. And the challenge here to these readers is, who do you really trust? for the good things that you receive? Who do you really think benefits you? Who do you really think? Who are you trusting in really? Because if you really think that it's going to be the rich who give you good things, what is the reality to that? You know your own experience. They're often the ones persecuting you. It's God who will give you good things. It's God who will sustain you. He is turning on its head the worldly view of how can I benefit me? Who here can do good for me? And he's pointing us back to God, who is the only one who gives us good things. It's through God that we receive all that we have. He is the giver of good gifts. Who do we serve, the rich or God? Now, I want to be very clear here. James is not saying that God does not desire rich people to be saved 
or that they are a special class of evil. As Paul makes clear elsewhere in 1 Timothy, God desires all people, all kinds of people, rich, poor, ruler, slave, master. God is seeking all of them to be saved. But what he is here is he's pointing us, he's taking our view off those worldly metrics where our gaze so often falls and pointing us back to God as the giver of all good things. Here's the reason why James is doing that. In the next series of verses, we're going to find that that James has a point to all this, a reason why we cannot look at this the way the world does. And here's the reason. At the end of the day, we all stand as equals at the foot of the cross because we're all sinners in need of grace. The distinctions that we make in this world gloss over the fact that we all, each one of us, rich and poor, have the same problem. We're all sinners who stand at the foot of the cross in need of grace. In verse 8, James says this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. I want you to follow James' argument here. This, is a, this can be a difficult passage if you don't follow James' argument very closely here. He says this, we just read this passage out of Matthew 22, right? It's the second commandment, right? You you remember that? And he says this, here's the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the standard. And then he says this, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why is showing partiality necessarily a sin? Okay. Here's why it's a sin. If the standard is to love your neighbor as yourself, but you start looking at people and saying, hmm, how can that person who's my neighbor benefit me? How can that person who's my neighbor benefit me? If you make the world all about you and your benefit, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Or are you loving yourself and trying to find benefit from your neighbor? putting aside the poor man who you don't want to serve and raising up the rich man who might be able to give you something that you need. See, James understands what it actually means to love your neighbor as yourself. And he's saying, if you show partiality based on what you need, based on a religion that's about you, you have violated the royal law. And then he goes on and he says this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Now, why is that the case? Why is it the case that if I just, if I just violate one small piece of the law, that I'm now a sinner under the whole law? Why is that true? Because the second law here, the law about loving your neighbor as yourself, is really, at the end of the day, just an extension of the first law. Loving your neighbor as yourself is just loving God above everything. If you can't do that, if you can't can't fulfill one of those laws or any of those laws, then what you're really saying is you don't love God with all of your heart, 
with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And you failed the first and most important law, and that's why you fail at the second law. If you sin at any one of these points, you've become a sinner under the whole law because you violated the first one and the greatest. And so he goes on and he says this, For he who said, who said, who said this, do not commit adultery, who said that? God did. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You have refused to obey the one who said these things. And so if God says, love your neighbor as yourself, and you fail to do it, you become a transgressor of the whole law because you're rejecting God's authority. You're rejecting what he says. If, you're not, if, you're not, if you don't follow Paul's or James' argument here, this can become confusing to us. But I hope that I'm making this clear that the most important thing in all of this is to see the world through God's eyes, not our own. So then Paul, or James concludes here, and he says this. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. See, our only hope is the law of liberty. The law of liberty is our only hope because we all need mercy as lawbreakers. What is the law of liberty? This is the second time James has used that phrase in this book. What is it? What is the law of liberty? Well, what James is looking at here, he's calling it, James, almost certainly the brother of Jesus. And you have to believe that James was just so keyed in to his brother's teaching. And almost certainly what James has in mind here is one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember that one? We've probably all heard it before. There's a servant, there's a ruler in one of his servants. And what the story tells us, what Jesus tells his hearers is this, that servant owed the ruler 10,000 talents, 10,000 talents. One talent was about equal to 20 years wages. And so what the story is communicating to us is that this servant owed this ruler the equivalent of 200,000 years of labor. And he couldn't pay. And so the ruler brings him before him and says, where is what you owe me? And the servant pleads with him. He says, please, please, master, I can't pay you. I can't pay you. And the ruler forgives him. He has mercy on him. And he forgives him. And he sends him out. And no sooner has that forgiven servant left the room of his master, does he go out and find a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. 
And he takes that servant, he grabs him by the scruff of the neck, and he says, where is my money? And a hundred denarii, a denarii is about a day's wage. He owes him a hundred days' wages. And of course, his fellow servant asks him for mercy and says, please, please, I can't pay. Have mercy on me. And this servant who has just been forgiven this incredible sum refuses to forgive his fellow servant and has him thrown into prison. And we read this at the conclusion of the story that Jesus says this, Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is the law of liberty? The law of liberty is this. Because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Father has forgiven you. And you are free. You are under, you are out from under the weight of this crushing debt that was bearing down upon you, that you owed to God because Jesus has paid it. He has forgiven it. You're free. The law of liberty says this, you must act as if you are free. You must live as if you are free. You must forgive as you have been forgiven. You must pour out your life as Christ poured out his life for you. That is the law of liberty. It's the law of freedom, of, of acknowledging that you have been set free and living in that freedom. Acknowledging that all good things come from God and using your life to give good things to other people. That's the law of liberty. That's what true religion looks like, is living out your life in freedom because of the forgiveness you have received from God. And that takes seeing you and everyone around you from God's perspective. That's what it takes. Now, we live in a world today in which these passages, I think, are of great help. They are of great help in the confusing times in which we live. We need to hear messages like this. We need to understand and remember that the royal law is this, to love neighbor as yourself. That's a very important message in the confusing times that we have. 
How do we love our neighbors well? How do we do that? Well, what I want to do for the rest of this sermon is try to give some practical tips, some tools on how to do that well. And so we're going to look at some things here that, that I hope will help you process through and think through how you can love your neighbors well. So he, here it is. I'm going to talk about four words, four tools that can help you understand how to do this. We have a world with lots of needs. It's very clear that as we look out in the world today, there are people with lots of needs, and we have people with lots of opinions, okay? So as we navigate those two things, the needs that are out there, the real needs that are out there, and the opinions about how we should deal with these needs, we're going to keep these four things in mind, okay? And the first one is this, empathy. Empathy, that's the first practical tool. Now, all of the words that I'm going to be using today are related. They're related to this Greek word called pathos. Pathos, and if you're a student of Greek, you know that that word pathos means feeling. And every word that we're going to talk about for the next few minutes are, are modifications of that word by a, a prefix here. And this prefix that we're looking at is the prefix m, which means in, in feeling. The word empathy means in feeling. And here's what's in mind here. When you have empathy from some, for somebody, you're trying to understand the world from their point of view. You're trying to understand the world as they see it. You're trying to see, to, to be with them, to understand it from their point of view. That's empathy. It's not what we often tend to do when we see people and they're in struggle or struggling or in pain, we see them, number one, as a problem to be fixed. Empathy takes a step back from that and says, no, I, I want to understand their problem. I want to understand what they're going through, why they may be experiencing the world in this way. Now, for each of these, I, I want our example to not be me or some other person that we're, we're familiar with. I want it to be Christ. He is the one who did this perfectly. Christ is the one who showed empathy. And we read this in, in Philippians, 2 chapter, uh, or Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, one of the things, especially in our day and age, that we like to do is when we see a problem in the world, especially in the age of social media, is we love to sit there in our chair and from on high over the internet type out all the solutions to all the world's problems, right? It's really hard to have empathy on social media. That's why it makes it such a difficult medium. God did not sit up on high from heaven and just type out a bunch of things for us to follow and listen. Don't get me wrong, he did that. We have a lot of truth from God, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But that's not all he did. 
He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. He entered human form, and he came down to be with us. He knows what it's like to be you. And we must try to do the same. We must try to do the same. When we see people in their struggle, in their difficulty, we must try to understand why it's such a struggle, why it's so difficult for them. And when we do that, it makes this next tool possible. And the next tool that we want to look at is sympathy. Sympathy. Empathy and sympathy, they're different. Sympathy, that prefix there, means with feeling. All right? Now, here's the difference between the two. Let's say you were with me and, and, and you saw somebody or you're with somebody and you saw somebody slander them or say something that's completely false about them. And this person who was the recipient of the slander, man, they're just sitting there. They're just depressed. They can't imagine how anybody would, would say something like that. They're feeling terrible about themselves. Okay, empathy would enter into that and say, man, I can understand how they would feel terrible. Sympathy might be outraged that this happened to them. You have feeling, you have an opinion about what they're going through, you might be outraged along with them. They don't feel outraged. They feel hurt. They feel despondent and depressed. You feel outraged because you feel something about what they're going through too. Now, it's really hard to do that well unless you first had empathy for what they're going through. Really hard to do that well. As a matter of fact, we see this example in the book of Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews says this, So then, we have a great high priest who has passed from the heavens, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The high priest was the one person who, on behalf of Israel, went before God as their intercessor. He was the one who, who went before God and said, Please, God, forgive the sins of these people. He was pleading on behalf of the people who had sinned for God to forgive them. Jesus is our high priest, and he can sympathize on our behalf because he has been one of us except without sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way and yet not sin. And he can sympathize for us because he has become one of us. That's the point of the writer that the writer of Hebrews is making. And if we are going to advocate for people, if we're truly going to have sympathy for them, we have to understand what it is they're actually going through so that we can properly understand what it is they actually need. But this next one, I think, is very important. We've talked about empathy. We've talked about sympathy. This next one is important, and it's often the hardest. And the way I'm going to say it is this way, apathy. Now, we sometimes think of apathy as a bad thing, but here it's a good thing. Because what we're really talking about is truth. That A at the beginning of pathos, of, uh, 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 that apathy means without feeling. Without feeling. 
And I'm going to warn you, this is the hardest to apply. And we should be aware of the danger. We live in a world that is very confused about truth. If you look at the world around you, you will, obvi- all, you will usually see statements being made like, your truth, my truth. And what's really behind those statements isn't truth at all. What we're really saying in those statements is how you feel about this or how I feel about this. They're not statements of truth at all. They're confusing feelings with the truth. Now, we truly do feel the way we feel. That's not, there's nothing controversial about that. But the way we feel about things is not always based upon truth. We may feel a way, so, some way about something based on a lie that we believe, based on something that's not true. Our feelings can be very, very misleading. And so there is a place amongst our feelings, a very important place amongst our feelings for truth. To, to set aside all the things that we think we feel about something and understand, but what is actually true? We have to ask our questions, what is true beyond what I feel? In Luke chapter 13, verses 1, there is a very difficult story when you read it the first time. And maybe every time you read it after that, it may not get easier. But there's a story about Jesus where he's approached by some men, and they tell him this story. In chapter 13, it says this, There were some present at the very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate, the Roman governor in Judea, apparently killed some Jews in the temple as they were offering sacrifices And not only did he kill them in this holy place, he also mixed their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. Incredibly sacrilegious. This pagan ruler coming into the temple, killing Jews, and mingling their blood with the holy things that they revered. And you can only imagine that as they bring this story to Jesus, what they're expecting from him is an empathetic ear. A sympathetic ear. Maybe he should be just as outraged as they are about what this terrible person, Pilate, did. But here's his response when they bring him the story. He says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I don't think they probably like that very much. I don't think that's what they wanted to hear. But it's what they needed to hear. Jesus, in this moment, could never be accused of a lack of empathy. He knows not only how these men feel, he probably knows how those Jews who were murdered in the temple feel. In just a few short weeks, he's going to be before Pilate, and Pilate is going to murder him, the Holy One of Israel. 
this pagan king is going to kill Jesus in just a few short weeks. No one could ever accuse Jesus of not understanding how they felt. Nor could he accuse them, nor could they accuse him of being unsympathetic. Jesus is doing what he is doing, and he is telling them what he is telling them to save them. So that they will take their eyes off the things they think are important in this world, like Roman rulership, like kingdoms of this world, like Jewish dominance. And so they will put their minds where they actually need to be. That the real enemy isn't Pilate, it's their sin, it's death. You see, Jesus is not unempathetic, and he's not unsympathetic. But here, he points them to the truth. He's able to put his own feelings about the matter aside and remind them what's really important in the midst of it all. And we have to be able to do that too. And that's very difficult because we have very strong feelings about things that are going on in the world. Very strong feelings. And those feelings are not always right. They're certainly not always wrong. There are true injustices in the world. There are things that are really bad. There, there are lots of, of uh, opinions that, that we should be against, that we should be uh, fighting out there. And we have feelings about that, but we must, at the end of the day, be able to put all those feelings aside and understand what is true. We must have a healthy apathy for the things of this world. And that leads me to the last tool that we're going to talk about here today. And that's antipathy. You see, once we have properly empathized with the plight of our fellow man, once we have properly said we are going to sympathize with him and we are going to advocate for our fellow man, once we have understood the truth of what that looks like and what we must do, there are going to be certain things that we are against. There just have to be. The truth always divides. And there have to be certain things that we say we will not be for that. And here are two things that we will be against at this church. We just will. And here's, here's the first one. We will not be a people who do nothing. There are real problems in this world, whether it's homelessness, whether it's racism, whether it is the, um, the crisis of adoption and the thousands upon thousands of kids in the foster system, whether it is the evil of abortion. There are real issues in this world that we must care about and we must do something. We cannot just be hearers of the word who do nothing. We will be against anything that says we just can sit back and let the world burn and hope God saves us. We will do something. We will be a church where there is true religion. But we will also be against all false gospels. Any gospel that promises something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ is a false gospel, and we will not be for that here. 
any critical theory that seeks to divide the church by class or by race or by sex or by gender or by whatever worldly standard is out there, we will reject that here. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. And different classes, different races, even different political parties are not our enemy. Sin and death is our enemy. And we should never forget that. So we will be against those two things. And there may be other things that we're against. But we'll only be against things that are against the truth. We will be for the truth. And the truth is this. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, Lord. We want to see the world through your eyes. There are so many opinions in the world in this day and age that seek to lead us astray, that seek to take our eyes off of you and take them down to worldly things that distract everyone from the real problem, which is sin and death, the great enemy. You have defeated that enemy. You have defeated it. Jesus, you have conquered sin and death at the cross. May nothing take our eyes off that and the mission you have given us to declare that gospel to the world. That is what people need. That's what everyone needs. May we be a church that declares that boldly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.